that's uh, episode one, guys. All right. Get it. Let's hope it doesn't suck as bad as Lucas's episode one. Who's <laughs> Lucas? George oh. Lucas. <laughs> that was a Star, Star Wars, Wars joke. Star Wars joke. <laughs> We're nerds. We're not going to get better. No. <laughs> it's, it's gonna, this is literally as good as it gets right here, guys. No, we'll get better. This is the Nashdown this is NashDev episode one. Today we have Will, Rodney, and Jason talking about testing, work-life balance, and failure. And a big thanks out to Emma for hosting us. Welcome to NashDev. We're a podcast about software engineering and the Nashville developer community. I'm Will Golden, and I'm a software engineer at Emma. I'm Rodney Norris, and I'm a software engineer at Emma. And I'm Jason Orndorff, and uh, I'm a software engineer at Mozilla. A couple weeks ago, before we started um, recording our first episodes, I, I sent a couple messages out on Twitter about um, what kind of stuff would you like for us to talk about? And uh, we got some really great responses, and a couple of them really stood out to us. Um, do, do you all have any that you would particularly like to, to talk about first, or maybe highlight? Well, let's talk about let's talk about Adrian's question. This is sure to bring out opinions. I think <laughs> Adrian asks. Uh, I, I guess she. I guess this is coming straight off of Twitter. Uh, she asks. Um, Please talk about TDD, that is test-driven development. Do you do it? Recommend it? Hate it? Think it has its place? Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I'll go last. <laughs> Will? So I think TDD in principle is a great idea, like the idea behind it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you guys in on a, a really dirty secret, though. Um, I actually don't do TDD. I test my code. My code's tested, and I, I do all, you know, like any good developer should, any ethical developer should test their code. Um, but I don't, I don't follow the TDD principle. I don't actually write my tests first. I, I, and I think part of that is because when I learned to code, I, I'm self-taught, right? Like I learned to code by myself. I didn't know about testing until later mm -hmm. on in my career. So I just learned to code in a certain way. My, the way I attack a problem is, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of stab around in the dark a little bit, you know, like kind of yeah. just poke around until I get something working and then refactor and refactor. And then I'll go write the test. Uh, I could probably do better by doing TDD, but I just never really worked that into my workflow. Uh, and it's just a different way of thinking about stuff. Um, what about you all? I'm not much different than that. Uh, I find myself using it sometimes uh, when I know what I want the outcome to be. If I'm starting to attack a problem where I, I know these these set of functions, this endpoint needs to return this, then I'll find myself doing that. Uh, but it's testing is something I came to very late in my career. I was probably programming for eight years before I knew what a unit test was. Yeah, so was I. So it's, it's not something that was ingrained in me, and I haven't picked up the as hardcore as I've seen other people do it where they you know write a test for everything, red-green refactor and refactor mm -hmm. tests. And I admire that and as many times as I've tried to do it, I, I find myself stumbling on it and I, I tend to work through harder problems where I don't know what, what the outcome needs to be ahead of time mm -hmm. by kind of stabbing at stuff, building interfaces and then refactoring those and then writing the test afterwards. Yeah. So that's kind of my default approach, right? Um, so I guess we're all sort of in the same place where we feel like tests are necessary. And oh, I, feel, absolutely, yeah. I feel like yeah. that, I feel like that, is 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 uh is not a conclusion that everybody has reached um or at least not every organization has embraced it uh so i think that's like that's the most important thing is you have to have if you if you want if you want functionality to stick you have to have an automated test suite it has to run all the time um 
uh, Mozilla, like my job right now is actually really extraordinary in this regard because I work on a JavaScript engine and it turns out that that is the easiest thing in the world to test because we, uh, you, can, you can compile the JavaScript engine and just run it from your command line. You just give it some JavaScript because it's like Node. It's like, you know, how would you unit test Node? Well, you would write a, you would write a, if you want to unit test like console.log, you just write like a little program that calls console.log and run it and see if the output is correct, right? Um, and that is like the easiest possible thing to test. I mean, and other things get, it gets really hard once you're testing user interface code and, you, you know, you're testing interactions that involve a person or like another server you don't have control over or a database. We've got, like, I've got none of that in my in my job. Um, yeah, testing state is hard. Like, yeah. <laughs> as you click 15 levels deep, all of a sudden a purple dinosaur flies off the screen. Like, it just happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it, like, it's really hard to, like, what, what is the acceptance criterion for that? You have to think about it, right? Uh, for me, it's like... You know, if, if we implement a new language feature like classes in JavaScript, will we write a bunch of small, tiny programs, like 10 lines long, that use classes in simple ways, you know, and make sure that the code runs and gives the expected results? Um, so if you're in a situation like that, you're golden and you ha- you've got to write tests and you've got to do it obsessively. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't write my tests up front, but I can always tell when I should have because... It's when I've been like going around in circles trying to get the right interface, and then I'm like, you know what? This is stupid. I should go back and like just type the the code using the interface the way I want it to look, and then do that, and then it, then the interface comes just perfectly and easily and naturally. Um, I think like that's that's the that's the promise of TDD. It's like if you write if you start thinking of everything completely from the user perspective, like. Uh, how how would I use this object? Like how would I use this method? Um, it's supposed to help you divine, design those interfaces. It's supposed to help you with your design. That's what test driven uh, design really is. Um, and I again, like I can't, I can't say that I do that very often. Um, I would like in my particular job, it doesn't help very much. I think I've I've found recently that when I when I'm doing most closely to TDD is when I'm writing more functional programming and testing pure functions if i'm writing utility uh modules in javascript to that are you know input in input output out you know or if i'm writing elixir and that's when i find myself kind of adhering more to tdd because you just had to drop elixir in there didn't you yes i did just had to (laughs) that's funny because that's like exactly the case where you 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 actually know ahead of time what you want the interface to be right Mm -hmm. and that's the case where it's like the easiest the easiest to, to write the test up front, right? Yeah. And most convenient. Um, yeah. No, I, and me too. <laughs> you, you touched on something earlier, Jason, that, that I thought was interesting, though. You, you said most companies find that testing is something they need to do. Um, I would a- almost argue that testing is like an ethical imperative for us as engineers in order to, like... See, I, I actually totally agree with you. Yeah, yeah. So, but, it's the, but actually, it's something we, I think it's something we've talked about before. Maybe so, yeah. Um, Sounds like something we talk about. I think what brought me originally to unit testing when I you know, first started learning about it and really started using it, I was still in .NET and I was working on a system that was pretty complex. And I got to the point where it was easier for me to reproduce bugs with unit tests and then fix the bugs and validate yeah. that they were fixed with the unit tests. And that's where I really started to see the value in them and use them a lot more. 
I mean, it's it's just such a great tool for just driving a spike into an existing system and like nailing down some behavior that's that's like error prone or behaves badly a lot. Um, it, you know, you got a legacy system and it's just like feels like everything's broken all the time. It is just it feels so good to get that first automated test, you know, running on every check in. Yeah, and, and from a team's perspective, like it's really great to just have that confidence of like, okay, I'm going to go change this part of the code and have the confidence that, you know, I made this change and now that test broke. That means like, okay, cool. Well, I can go fix that or I can change my code in a way to make that test pass. You you can feel good in the, at the end of the day when you ship that code live to, you know, 100,000 people or mm-hmm. a million people or however many people that your, your app uses and feel good that, you know, I'm not going to break something. You might break something that's not tested but you know at least at least the test <laughs> yeah. the test cases are covered right but on the same token not all unit tests are created equally and there are times where you can be in a code base where it has unit tests but they're very brittle and sometimes they don't give you that confidence um and then sometimes that can make the tests as frustrating to deal with as no tests when I have conversations about uh, testing uh, with people who are not testing very much or not testing as much as I do, I often get this um, uh, this concern that, like, you know, it's often people who've seen, like, a video or a blog about testing where the person, like, the, whoever it is, is, like, clearly kind of a fanatic about it and and, and going overboard. And, and this happens a lot when a blog takes examples that are just too simplistic, right? Uh, but for, and in the interest of providing a reasonable amount of code on the page for somebody to read, um, in, in, in the real world, tests are, tests are awesome. Um, and it, it's, it's, it, it when I when I have those conversations, I always feel like, yeah, but isn't that kind of an excuse? Like I don't, I, I feel like I, this this concern about testing going going wild and like all your time being taken up writing unit tests that oh, yeah. are useless, they're never going to break, yeah. that like are, are trivial. Yeah. Um, I've never seen it happen, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm not so much talking about that. I'm just talking about like sometimes, um, and I'm still advocating testing. Is sometimes mm-hmm. impl- the implementation of unit testing can be done differently. And yeah, there's plenty of discussions to be had there as well mm-hmm. about unit testing, about like, oh, if I add a new optional keyword arg to this Python f- function and it breaks everything that uses that because they were testing what parameters got passed to it instead of testing the interface. Yeah. Yeah. When is it okay to change the tests instead, right? Like, well, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it depends. Yeah. Uh, but all these are good problems to have. Exactly. Like, you know, the, uh, if, your, if your tests are just telling you, oh, you changed something, like if that's all, if that's all they're doing, then you're already way ahead of m- most people, I think. Totally. And, and also, it, if you find yourself where those tests are brittle and they're just cumbersome to, 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 to write and to test well, like that, that's, a, that's a moment where you step back and think, okay, this code that I'm writing is not designed well enough to test, right? You as a developer, if if you're working on a on a sprint uh, on a sprint or if you do Scrum or whatever, and you're and you're working on a, on a on a an area of the code, and all of a sudden, okay, the, these tests that I'm running they keep failing or whatever, go into that code and refactor if you have yeah. time, or right? refactor that area of the code so that the the you make it more testable, right? Yeah. Like you expose the the public methods in a way that 
that's what you're testing. You're not testing the underlying implementation. You're testing the actual interface, right? And I'm also playing a little bit of devil's advocate. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I know, and, I know and, how you feel yeah. about testing. And, and, so. and, and, we need and to bring I, somebody I, in to play a devil's advocate. Yeah. For this. Yeah. <laughs> there's, no, there's just nobody here. You know, um, I, the, the, one of the cool things going on in Nashville is the Nashville Software School. Um, and they've been going, how long have they been going now? Is it like four or five years? Yeah. Now? Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a boot camp style program. Um, there's a, that is even, actually they're not even the only one in town anymore. There's yeah. They, uh, Iron Yard is, uh, another, uh, boot camp that's in town. Uh, they're pr- fairly new though. They're like about a year old now, mm-hmm. roughly a year old. Uh, but, but it's great. It's great to see like these, these schools, uh, coming in and filling a need for, uh, for pe- people that want to learn how to do this stuff and need a, you know, really good mentor, uh, mentor program. I've been really excited to see those type of things because there's definitely a need in the industry for talent. Well, and there's, there's a, there's a need for people to, to like find their way in, right. And find, and find a way to get started. Um, but it, it just makes for like a really cool scene where a lot of the people here who are going to the meetups are going to, you know, to, to build experience, to hear new things, to learn, um, and they they come from all of, all kinds of other fields. Uh, so w- one thing I wanted to mention though is that like when Nashville Software School was first getting started, their very first teacher, first course was uh, it was it was uh, Eliza Brock Markham, and she was she teaching Ruby, and she teaches in a very no nonsense style, and she teaches TDD from the first day. That's great. Um, so and and it's 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 cool, but I think a lot of people then wonder. Um, you know, uh, like, what is the other, what is the alternative? What is the other way? Um, and, and that I, goes back to what, we, what I was saying before. Like, I feel like if I learned to code in that style, I'd probably, that's probably just what I would do, right? But I just, I personally never learned it that way. But it's cool that there's a, this whole new crop. I don't of, think you would. I don't, I don't think anybody not, codes that way all the time. Because it's okay. just, it's just like, it's it's a discipline, right? You know, and, or or it's an addiction. Um like both, both of which, like whatever gets the job done. Like, like again, I'm not, I'm not a zealot about it. I just want the tests to be in there. They should land with the code. I think it's also a good way to, if you aren't used to testing, to force yourself to write them and get used to writing them. And it's a good way to train yourself. And then you'd probably back off eventually. Mm-hmm. Totally. So uh, do you guys want to uh, look at some of the other questions that came in? See, this is a really cool question. Can I, can I just pick one? Yeah. Yeah. Do yeah it, do it. It's, it's uh, another one from Adrian. It says, uh, she asks, uh, talk about looking at or reading a code base for the first time. Where do you start? How do you orient? How do you dig in? Uh, this is a great question. Um, and I, like, I always admire people who are unafraid and like to just like dive right into a new code base they've never seen before and, uh, and who can do that and quickly be productive. So I've gotten to do this a few times recently and in the past, just coming in jobs or getting switched onto a new team into a new code base. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Uh, like for me, I usually like in the past couple of experiences. What I've done is pick up a bug ticket and drive that home, or pick up you know pick something in the app and figure out how that works, and you know find that piece of code and track it back and understand that that stream and go from there. That's a great way to go. I think. Yeah. I think so too. What I would do is if the code is tested, I'll actually go read the test and see how the tests are lined out and see what the API looks like. That's cool. And, um, and kind of dig in from, from the interface in, right. And then kind of dig deeper and deeper and deeper to fully understand like how the whole thing's mapped together. Um, I'm earlier on in my career though, the way I would kind of uh, approach this would just be like, mm-hmm. I'm just going to go, <laughs> this kind of sounds silly. I'm just going to go throw a random debugger debug statement in somewhere 
right? And just see where that hits. I do that and to just, this day. And just explore, right? <laughs> just, just see, just see what would happen if I just change this thing, right? Another trick I do is I'll, 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 uh, I'll I, I, you know, I'll see some code I don't understand. I'll just delete it and then run the test suite. <laughs> <laughs> this might not be used, right? <laughs> usually, usually, flail, usually flunk something. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, there's so many ways to get into a new code base. I guess kind of an open-ended question. It's a great question, though, and it's it's kind of like one of those things that it really depends on the code. It depends oh, on yeah. like what the code's doing. Oh, I was gonna how say. It's set up, you know. Yeah, no, if it's a web app, and like, so I don't, I'm not, I haven't been a web developer for like decades now, but um, but if it's a web app that has like a database and there's a database schema, that's where I would start, because like, you see, yeah, how is this pers- persisted? You right? see, the, you see the tables, like you kind of at least know what the underlying structure is that like this is where the rubber meets the road really right like this is the state this is what persists for me if it's a web app i'm gonna i'm gonna go like try to dig out where the router is if if, if it's serving oh yeah uh, handling requests right i'm gonna see okay this this is my structure it's you know maybe a rest api here's where everything's you know this is how you would talk to it Mm -hmm. and then kind of dig in from there Cool. So we have a couple other ones. Uh, one of the uh, one of the questions I really thought was cool uh, came from Brian on Twitter, and he wanted to know about work life balance and uh, how to keep your skills sharp when there's so many things to learn, so little time, and how can you get started if you're if you're new to it, right? Like if you're if you're switching careers, how can you kind of dig it? It's, it's kind of like a three part question, but yeah, um, yeah. So work life balance. It's, 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 <laughs> can you balance? Is it possible to balance? All my free time doing podcasts. <laughs> yes. and that works great. Now, I, work-life balance is, like, I'm, I'm the worst person to ask this question because I've, I've got four kids, and I'm writing a book, and I've got a full-time job, and now I'm doing this podcast because I got suckered into it. Right. Um, yeah, so I'm going to go, the, I'm gonna go the mail, that part. Uh, but then, then um, but it, like, the other two things, these are, like, two really different things, like getting started and then keeping skills sharp. Keeping skills sharp, it feels to me like it gets harder and harder over time, because you get you get more and more. I don't know. Oh, I want to say it's stuck, but you get you, get you like your time gets more and more valuable to an organization, uh, like any organization you're in. Um, the the more experience you gain, right? And it gives you it just naturally gives you less time to like go out and and seek out new things. But also, as, as you get more comfortable in your skills, you make it a little lax in that that like i know i did in uh, several different points in my career where mm-hmm. i started to really get comfortable and then in my spare time you know i mountain biked or went to movies and yeah. you know didn't code whereas you know at some point i switched that up and started like trying to expand my skill set in my some of my free time not all my free time but some of it and that's where i, I started to find new ways to be passionate about things i started playing with hardware and arduinos and mm-hmm you know, really trying to, you know, play with something completely different than what I was comfortable with to give me that sense of, uh, accomplishment and new thing. And just that joy from learning something new. Something I actually kind of worry about, which is that like that, like exactly what you're saying totally resonates with me. And it's kind of like, that's exactly how I feel about uh, career development is that I'm kind of on my, on my own for that. If I want, if I want to, if I want to do like pure career development stuff through work, uh, I'm 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 sure that I can arrange it as long as it's relevant to what I'm doing now. Um, but if I want to do something different, you know, I really feel like I feel like, and and this is not coming from like 
you know my manager or my organization it's just kind of like uh just a common sense feeling that i get uh if it's totally unrelated to what i work on every day it feels like i should be spending my spare time on that um and fortunately i kind of have the luxury to do it right you and you and i both um but you know if you're coming from a different background and you just don't you know you don't have that kind of spare time or you don't have the resources to pull her into it um that comes a lot harder totally i think that oh, another thing to look at is as you become more experienced as a developer you start to recognize what is important for me to learn right is this new cool library that's coming out is that important for me to know is that it, you, you instead of jumping on the the new hotness that's coming out you kind of wait a little bit to see if that's going to gain traction is that becoming more of a, a standard then maybe go learn it instead of learning it on the when it's the cutting edge, right? And you you can you could probably argue a lot in the yeah. in the JavaScript community that a lot there's a lot of new hotness uh, where you just kind of jump on the bandwagon and ride it out. Um, yeah. But I think I think as you know we age as we you know get more experience that we're going to start to find that there are certain things, certain skills, certain libraries, techniques, and stuff that we can kind of play it safe a little bit to see if that's a thing that that's worth our time. We can be a little bit more picky, a little bit more, a little bit more intentional with our time, because you know I've got I've got two kids, one on the way, uh, run conferences, run right. meetups, now a podcast, websites, freelance, you know the whole thing. Like there's, <laughs> it's just a lot to do, and um, it's a good pers- thing this podcast is so awesome. Right? Yeah, great. I'm I'm loving it. I'm having a really, so, I'm having a really good time so far. Great question, Brian. You, yeah, you, you've got us all to like reconsider the life choices that got us here. <laughs> Going to take up woodworking full time. <laughs> right, I want to do one more of these. Uh, Scott asks, how do teams improve after failures? That's a great question. Do you have a good story? I mean, like, so it used to be when I was doing web development that something like two-thirds of projects failed. I don't know if it is quite so drastic anymore. I've heard those type of statistics for i've never so i've had small failures and i've had some mm-hmm. some failures where projects failed but then you know it was projects that were funded for multi-years so it's like i always wonder how i feel about that you know it's like how much of a failure was that when you know it was funded for three years and i had a job for three years <laughs> when you say it failed it, uh, do it, you mean do you mean Contract it served a purpose re- for a little while, but then yeah. it died, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah it, it died, and then, uh, you know, contract ran out. Yeah. Customers stopped paying for it. And, you know... I, I, yeah, that doesn't like, seem so to, bad. To me, it feels like a failure. Nothing because, lasts forever. Yeah, but nothing lasts forever. And, and that's kind of how I talk to myself about it. But then I also have smaller failures. Like, a month ago, uh, I was working in a code base, and we had some, uh, some time at the end of the sprint where we kind of finished a little bit early, and we wanted to... You know, upgrade from Require.js to Webpack and go from AMD modules to ES6 modules. Mm-hmm. So we spent two days, heads down, got it converted, and then st- got, it, got it working mostly and had a couple of kinks and then realized, oh, wait, uh, the test suite all fails now and none of it works. So then we had to take oh. a step back and uh, reevaluate that, and we took a different approach. We, uh, you know, a couple weeks later, we had some time, and we just refactored it to use Webpack instead of Require.js, left the AMD modules in place, mm-hmm. then got the tests working with Webpack, mm-hmm. and now we're slowly starting to 
rewrite the modules using ES6 imports and X, like one module time and fixing the test at the same time. And it's a little bit, you know, more sustainable yeah. practice and less gung ho. Yeah. Right. But we learn from it and at the end result will be a little it's bit. Like little, you're talking about a two day project failing. Yeah. Like, I can't, Oh no. Yeah, no, it's not real. It's not a real project. That. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. So, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, I, I, I'm fortunate to have been a part of, of, of failures at all scales. Like up up to and including like startups that just like explode, um, <clears throat> and uh, I I don't know I feel like um, the best I I think it's important and I I I, I don't know maybe actually we should talk about this is it does it help does it help to talk about a a project after you finish it success or failure like just to meet maybe as a team and talk about what happened what could have gone better. Yeah, part of the Scrum process, um, I sound like a big Scrum guy, I'm actually not, uh, is is uh, ret- doing retros after a project, right? Mm-hmm. Or after after a sprint. How well did this go? What, what can we do better? You know, really evaluate how things are going. And I think whether you adopt um, uh, Scrum or whatever methodology or not, um, some of the really key takeaways is to be a healthy team is to have trust on your team, to be honest with each other when things are going good or going bad. And um, just having the hard conversations, right? Like, you know what, man, uh, you said you were going to do this by Thursday and you know, you were, you were out Wednesday, right? You were whatever, right? Like for whatever reasons outside of your control, mm-hmm. uh, the communication wasn't there. I didn't know that you were not going to get that thing done and I was relying on you. Right. So like the, the communication has to be there. The trust has to be there and you have to just like be honest after, at the end of a project, like, listen, this is the thing that, that caused us to do it and, and, and do it in a, in an empathetic way and do it in a, in a, you know, a very respectful way, but still do it, right? Just do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah I, I because, completely uh, agree. Because overall, like, this is going to sound like all, like, high and mighty, but, like, he, like people just want to do a good job. Like, I don't think anybody just comes to work and says, you know what, I'm going to just mm-hmm. do the bare minimum to skate by, right? For, for the most part. Especially engineering, right? We're, the, the people that we've we become as engineers, we, we, mm-hmm. we want to think about hard problems. We want to think about solving things. We want to think about making a difference. And, you know, most people come to work every day thinking, I'm going to do a good job. I'm going to do the best I can do. And they're going to they're going to try to do it. So there's usually when there's a failure, there's some kind of breakdown in the, the team process and the communication uh, that caused that failure. So, so that's not my experience. My experience is failures. Failures happen for a ton of different reasons. And every failure is, like, delightfully unique and different. Um, but a lot of failures are because of... Uh, you know, you, you didn't build the right thing. Um, or, and, and, you know, maybe it's totally beyond your control and you were told to build X and you built the closest approximation to X that you could come up with and it's like totally the wrong thing. Um, uh, or, or, um, or... But that or, could come down to communication too, though, right? Like, so it certainly if, could. If, if, it, it usually is. It, right. Communication is like this major root cause of like all kinds of stuff, but it's not necessarily like communication within a team. Um, it can be communication the requirements external to the team it, it can be and it can happen a lot of different ways so i, I think um what what i've what i've seen done, i actually you know i'm just thinking now the way that i work right now i we have such tiny units of work and it's they're individual bugs um that the risk in any individual one is not so great and so we just don't have working on an established product um you don't necessarily 
always have that risk of large scale failure that that you need to talk about it. Um, yeah, I think failure in the, in the startup sense is much more risky. It's much mm-hmm. more um, could be much more catastrophic if you if you go the wrong direction. You you might not have the run rate to continue to like operate right. Like you, yeah. you only have so much budget. Um, but like for a product company like Emma or for like Mozilla, like where you have these established projects where you're adding things, you're kind of bolting stuff onto it. Um, yeah, we can, we can afford to, um, take much more safer chunks of work and kind of get feedback on it and, and, you know, make a commitment, uh, for a specific set of value in time and then deliver that and then get feedback and measure it and, uh, it's less a two week chunk of time is less risky than a nine months risk of a piece of time, right? Something that struck me when I went to Mozilla was that how actually, and it strikes me to this day is how willing that organization is to take risks. And we, you know, we'll dedicate brilliant engineers to crazy, crazy ideas for a month or two months, um, and in those cases, usually the kind of failure you get is, well, it didn't pan out. Like, this turns out not to be a very good idea, or or um, they just turned out to be... It, it, the, we discovered that the amount of work actually there is just way greater than we can do. And that kind of failure is kind of okay, right? Um, I, I have, you probably learned something, right? Like, you got something out of it. It's, it's not, an experiment to begin with, right? Right, right. You know, I mean, you, know you, you kind of... If you know it's a risk going in, it's a little bit different. That's also, like, where the industry has gone in the past you know, decade or so is more agile and things mm-hmm. like that. I mean, I've, I worked for the longest time in traditional waterfall. Like yeah. y- you commit a year in advance to what you're going to deliver in, you know, you're going to have two releases, mm-hmm. you know, every six months and you're going to head down, you're going to design stuff, you're going to put it out. And, you know, sometimes you get, you know, we always got it all, but sometimes it wasn't all that they wanted because usually when you're doing that, you commit to less. You were telling me a story uh, not too long ago about like the way the process you worked at a couple jobs ago, where like when the code was time to ship, they would like put it on a gold disc and oh, fly, yeah. it, fly it into the place, and like they'd have to sign off on it, and like you know, yeah, that, that was so that's back in the waterfall days. So yeah, we would make a release every six months, but our release was to one set of people, and then they would test it, and it would be another two months before it was gold disc, and it'd be another month before users saw it. So our Turnaround time was like nine months yeah, before that. a user was using our software. Which seems nuts now. Yeah. Right. Like even even something like Firefox, which is, you know, if you're making a website, your deploy time could be seconds. Right. right? Command R, you're refreshing. Um, there it is. Okay, there's my stuff. Firefox isn't quite like that, but even even that, we you know, we 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 ship stuff in twelve to eighteen weeks. Yeah. And you all have nightlies, and the developer edition gets stuff really fast, right. and then yep, and then there's a, you know then there's a beta mm-hmm. channel, and then there's a release where it goes to all the users. I think that's a really good model for that type of software. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, so, do you guys want to talk a little bit about some events that are coming up in the community? Yeah. So this week, uh, Tuesday night, April twenty sixth, is Nash FP. That's going to be at the MO Bistro from six to nine, usually. Yep. Yep. And then. Uh, also on Tuesday night at BMI is the Nashville Mobile Developer User Group. They're going to do a Swift Code Lab. Wednesday morning, there's the Nash Dev Breakfast uh, at 7 a.m. on, uh, not on, at Fido. And the Nashville PHP Hot Chicken Lunch 
uh, is also that same day between 11 and 2 p.m. at Hattie B's. That's so On Charlotte. Yeah, it's totally Nashville. At, at Hattie B's on Charlotte. Hattie B's on Charlotte. We need to clarify Charlotte. this to them. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, then Wednesday night is the Geek Girl Dinner Happy Hour from 6 to 7.30 at Jackalope Brewery. And we have Pie Nash uh, on Thursday night. Thursday night at 6 o'clock at the Emma Bistro. That's uh, Marcus Fulbright. We'll be talking about an intro to 80 Best Lambda. And that, those are our meetups for this week. Um, Jason, you want to talk a little bit about some uh, upcoming events uh, in the future, coming up in the future? Okay, so uh, so um, th- that this so Saturday week from now, I guess <laughs> Saturday the four, the thirtieth. Saturday the thirtieth is Nashville. Have we mentioned that dates are hard in programming? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like staring at this thing, trying to figure out what date this is. Um, sorry, I so, said. Saturday the thirtieth is Nashville Tabletop Day. This is, um, uh, it's it's not a developer specific thing. This is organized by a developer at Eventbrite, uh, Andy Matthews, uh, and it is this is a huge event. It's coming to is the it's the end of the bistro. Is that right? Uh, and we'll put the link uh, in the podcast notes. Yeah. And we also have uh, Vaco's uh, Geek Fling. Um, Coming up on May 11th, it's going to be between five and nine at the Greenhouse Bar. It's a Wednesday night. Yeah, and so uh, Vaco, they every year they put on. Is it every year or every quarter? Might Seems be quarter. Pretty, pretty often. Yeah, they have a couple. They do. Ones. They they buy you know booze and food for everybody and have has a uh, invites everybody out to have a good time. Uh, we also have uh, the Raven Pinball Invitational. So Raven uh, Software is hosting a pinball tournament. Uh, at their their office, and it's uh, on Thursday, May twelfth. And also coming up this summer is a really cool thing, and it's um, there's going to be uh, a code camp to teach eight to eighteen year olds how to code. Uh, and we'll we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And it's it's uh, I think the ne- National Technology Council is helping uh, organize that, which is really really cool to help get you know young young people. God, how old do I sound saying young people? Getting those youngsters in here to learn how to code. Uh, so, yeah, we'll, we'll put a link into that. It's going to be really, really cool. Cool. So, yeah, let's talk about picks. Uh, Rodney, what do you got this week? I'm going to pick uh, Daredevil Season 2. I'm slowly m- making my way through it, and it's awesome. Cool. I'm reading a super cheesy sci-fi book called Warship by Joshua Dalzell, and it's like this – I don't even know how to explain it. It's just – it's it's like popcorn pulp pulp fiction. It's really good, though. Uh, and okay, now I feel a little self-conscious because <laughs> my pick is uh, a book that I'm reading that's about that's about uh, evolutionary biology. It's called "The Origins of Life: From the Birth of Life to the Origins of Language," um, and I don't know what to say about it except it's mind-blowing. And evolution is really, really weird, and there's it's full of meta. <laughs> it's so meta. Awesome. So uh, thanks for joining us on our very, very first episode of the Nash Dev Podcast. Um, you can learn more at nashdevcast.com. Uh, we actually have a Slack channel if you want to join uh, nashdev.com. Uh, you can put your email address in, sign up. Uh, mostly Nashville folks are in there, but hey, you want to come hang out, please do. You can follow us on Twitter at nashdevcast, on Facebook at nashdevcast as well, and on SoundCloud. Leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher and find show notes at nashdevcast.com. This is episode one. Thank you very much to Emma for volunteering the space. And thanks to you for listening. See you soon. Have you ever thought about 
Bubbles. <laughs> I'm Roman Mars.